This is the this is the plight of the podcaster. I'm gonna fucking say words out loud. <laughs> if, if you guys want to hang on real quick, I'll go see if my wife is busy. She's a speech language therapist. She <laughs> oh damn, you just roasted us. All right, all right, we deserve that. Does she take my insurance? <laughs> Honestly, am I? I did. I did have a speech. Uh, I did have a uh, speech problem when I was younger, but I think. I don't actually know what it was. I just know I. It's like so some words. I just don't know. I don't understand it. I say them, and then one day I'm like, "What?" I'm look, man. I'm the same way. Try living with a speech therapist. She 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 diagnoses me on a daily basis. <laughs> Sometimes she looks at me when, I'm, especially if I'm really high and I'm talking like I'm a like a complex puzzle she's got to figure out. Dude, some people pay good money for that though. Like literally, healthcare isn't cheap in this country. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. True. True. Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 132 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. We are very excited to welcome back to the pod Nick Chavez, who... You know, if, if you haven't heard our episode with Nick from a while, from, from last year, Nick is a, uh, mechanical engineer working in, uh, manufacturing R&D and has written, you know, a, a really, really excellent essay that came out last year in Brooklyn Rail on, um, the, the kind of looking at the, the, the capitalist purpose and origins of engineering as a profession, um, but also the, the kind of class position of engineers within the modern economy. And we had a really excellent conversation with Nick looking at that, also looking at like what would uh, a kind of vision of, of of communist engineering and communist engineers look like. So, you know, there was so much in that conversation that we touched on that uh, we didn't have time to dig into. Uh, so we're, we're bringing Nick back on to largely, you know, look a little bit more broadly at the political economy of automation. You know, the automation is obviously something that we is well within the TMK wheelhouse is something we touch on here and there, but we've never really done a focused conversation around the kind of political economy of automation, how automation plugs into, emerges out of capitalism as a regime. Um, but it is deeply important in large part because, you know, in, in our imagination, we tend to think about automation uh, as something that happens in the industrial sector, right? Manufacturing, right? We're thinking about automation on the factory line. Um, but, you know, there's there's some interesting kind of paradoxes, relationships, dialectics happening here where, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that the the, much of the economy is or, organized around the service sector. I mean, you know, if you think about all the stuff we talk about on TMK, most of it falls within the service sector in some degree, which is, you know, this kind of catch-all. But, you know, we can think about like consumer or personal services, you know, things like the gig economy, Uber or Uber for this or Uber for that. You know, that's, a, that's all into the service, you know, come servant economy but also things that we talk about around like finance and insurance and real estate. Those are part of the uh, service economy too, but more on that, like, you know, it's not consumer or personal services. It's more of that business or professional services. But again, you know, it, it, it kind of opens up this question of 
how does automation actually exist in the economy? How is it playing into these things? Uh, and how is it kind of, uh, you know, what's its relationship to the fact that, you know, much of the economy is organized around service? So with all that kind of preamble laid out, Nick, thank you so much for coming back on TMK. Yeah, thrilled to be here. Yeah, and we, we are thrilled to have you here as well because, you know, you, you bring that perspective of actually being an engineer, a you know, being a professional engineer, being, you know, working within the manufacturing sector while at the same time uh, having a, a, a deep uh, understanding of Marxist political economy. Before you before you go too much further, I do want to just so I don't get like sued by the regulatory boards. Uh, a professional engineer is a licensure that I don't have. Um, most people in my kind of field don't get uh, professional engineering stuff. That's mostly for civil engineers. But I don't want anyone walking away from this thinking I'm more qualified than I actually am. So I can't sign off on your building plans. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's right. mostly what it gets used for. Yeah, I can't I can't certify your bridge for you. Like. <laughs> What I can say you are, uh, we can certify you as, is uh, TMK's engineering correspondent. Yeah, That's sure. Right. Let's, go, right. let's go with that. <laughs> you, you, are, go. you got that. You got that TMK certification, and the certification is spelled with a with a K. This machine certifies. Uh, <laughs> That's the one I care more about than the PE. I don't need my PE. I'll I'll, I'll happily proudly hoist my uh, my TMK certification loud and proud. We'll get you a placard. We'll get you a media pass, you know, oh, hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> little badger on my neck. <laughs> you guys laugh. I'm going to make, I'll make those for all of our guests. <laughs> <laughs> a very good and necessary disclaimer there, Nick. Uh, back in my, my early days of grad school, like I actually got into working on kind of topics around like the around technology, uh, you know, technology and society, politics and economics of technology. I, I originally started that by uh, looking at questions around like sustainability. And I was working on a project with some civil engineers and like sustainability ethics and engineering and stuff like that. So um, you're 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 ha you're reminding me all of this like disciplinary professional knowledge around the the sometimes uh, very like bureaucratic uh, ways that the engineering profession is actually organized and certified and all the kind of professional codes of conduct and stuff none of which we adhere to on TMK we are free from all of those professional certifications and codes of conduct as am I because again that's largely in the civil realm which I I'm not a civil engineer so yeah they're, they're civilized right. engineers I guess you could say <laughs> But I'm I'm an uncivilized engineer in that regard. Yeah, we're we'll be we're building theoretical bridges here, bridges to a new future. <laughs> there, there's been a, uh, uh, some very interesting work that we're all kind of that we can kind of build on as well in terms of thinking about how automation is actually like what the political economy of automation actually looks like maybe a, a interesting way to start is is actually looking at some of the ways that like how is automation playing into a lot of the things that we you know we as tech critics and analysts, um, you know, members uh, to varying degrees of either academia or the media, you know, focusing on the tech sector when automation does actually come up uh, around these like, you know, newspapers or magazines around the kind of discourse of automation. I think in large part, it does kind of fold, you know, land on one of two sides, right? 
One side is the, the kind of very old, you know, notions that automation is, is, is a threat, right? Automation is going to, to steal our jobs. The robots are going to come in. They're going to automate them away, right? There is a very famous, but also very widely debunked, uh, report from a while back ago from, um, Oxford that was saying, you know, like something like almost 50% of jobs are, are in a position to be, you know, threatened or displaced by automation. Uh, you know, th- th- this is very much the discourse that automation is something that comes in as a direct substitute for humans, for people. On the other side of that is the, you know, whether it's celebrated or whether it's condoned, um, is looking at the way in which like warehouses are automated. You know, Amazon's bringing in robotics and they're bringing in automation and, you know, you're going to have these lights out, uh, warehouse facilities where there's no people working there. It's all purely automated, you know, to the point where you can turn the lights out, save on that energy bill. You know, that, that seems to be a lot of the discourse around automation right now. Um, is that it's this like forward totalizing march. But, you know, we look around and it seems like none of that has come to fruition. Uh, I, I don't see, you know, this, this kind of big, large scale industrial automation as a major part of the economy. Um, but again, you know, I think we largely look at the service sector. So I did want to throw it over to you, Nick, and just kind of get your sense of what is the kind of current state of automation, especially coming from, you know, where you're working in the manufacturing sector. Sure. So I think when we talk about uh, automation not being super visible and super present, I think there's a good reason for that in the Anglosphere. Um, you know, we we live in. I mean, I live in the United States, um, and I mean, I guess I guess two of you do also. There's you know the economies in Western Europe, the United States, Canada. There's you know the, the general kind of as you would call it the. I'm, I'm I'm air quoting here for the for the audience who can't see me the the advanced sectors of the economy. There's the amount of the work for, we were deindustrialized, not in the sense that we don't make industrial stuff. Of course we do, but that a majority of the workforce doesn't work directly in what Marx would call uh, like productive labor. I mean, it's it's all unproductive labor or mostly unproductive labor in in these countries, and so it doesn't. We don't see all this like really high tech automation. But the thing is, if you go to places where there is a lot of this high tech automation, uh, which is actually a lot of it is here in the U.S. or whatever, it just doesn't employ a ton of people. Because that's how automation works. But if you go to, you know, where a lot of this manufacturing is, you go to you go to Taiwan, you go to China, you go to, you know, South Korea, uh, parts of Japan, uh, even now increasingly parts of Southeast Asia. That's you know, I mean, a t- more a larger proportion of people in some of those areas work in these kind of places where there is a lot of this high tech automation. But the way automation works is that even though we've, you know, offshoring has happened, a lot of these jobs, a lot of these factory worker jobs have been shipped over to overseas from from where I guess. Uh, you know, us, the, these, these people here on this podcast are living. Uh, it's not like there, it was a one-to-one replacement. Not every job lost here necessarily may gotten, you know, one replacement from someone in Shenzhen or whatever. I mean, the whole point of automation is to uh, reduce the amount of labor you need. Of course, there's big implications for what that means for, you know, markets and stuff. You have this huge fixed investment that you need to make a bunch of commodities to get your, to, to sell them for cheap commodities. You sell them to get your money back. But, you know, you run out of market to sell these cheap commodities to and then boom, like World War One or whatever. <laughs> so, yeah. And so in the sense that we don't see it because it's in some ways it's not around us here. And, and not only is like even though it is physically around us, like, you know, within like 10, a 10 mile radius where I am, there's loads of factories. There's loads of that kind of work and that kind of stuff. But there aren't a ton of people, uh, proportionally speaking, working there. 
And I think that's kind of, that affects a per, the perception a lot. And if we look at a lot of the literature around this stuff that is written uh, here in the US or Western Europe or that, those kind of places, there's, um, even though they're correct about that trend, the kind of focus on service sector work is largely because that's just kind of what's around them, even though a, a big chunk of the world is still doing what Marx would call productive labor. Yeah, this distinction between productive and unproductive labor is also a very interesting one. And and, and maybe yes. we can also throw some other distinctions in there and kind of flesh them out a little bit further. A little, a little bit of, you know, Marx 101 could really do a lot to set the scene here. So you've got Absolutely. productive versus unproductive labor. You've got living labor versus dead labor, right? Uh, and you've got, real you know, the real economy or real capital versus fictitious capital. Like these distinctions that, you know, Marx was laying out in capital, you know, in the different volumes of capital, in the Grand Dries, right, in his writings on political economy, like those distinctions still very much exist. And it, it does seem like, you know, let, 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 let's, let's flesh them out a little bit because I, you know, sure. in some ways we can think of like the, the kind of overarching imaginary of how automation was going to, uh, you know, march onto, onto the economy and we would all kind of see its effects in a very visible way doesn't really actually quite match up with this idea that like there's, there's two different kinds of economies happening at the same time, right? It's not just a, difference between service and manufacturing sector like it is a lot of it is around like you know what is the real economy what is the you know the fictitious capital or fictitious economy what is living labor what is dead labor um so maybe could you flesh out a little bit what you mean by unproductive and productive labor and these other kind of distinctions absolutely so uh Let's see. So I guess if we're, if we're going to start with unproductive versus productive labor, uh, and it, it sounds like one of those things that carries like a moralist kind of slant to it or some kind of uh, judgment in that regard. But in reality, that's not really, that's not what it means. Productive labor uh, in, a, in a Marxist sense is labor that uh, directly adds value to a commodity. Uh, and so we're, it's most exemplified in stuff like factory work, where you have an unfinished good comes down the line, an operator you know, pulls a crank and twists a, a doohickey. And then now their widget is one step closer to being a completed sellable widget. And then, so that was productive labor. They, they added value to it or like a miner who swings a pickaxe and extracts ore from a, uh, you know, the inside of a mine shaft. Uh, it's, it's productive labor is anything, any labor that uh, through the exertion of human physical calories, I guess, uh, imparts some kind of transformative effect upon the commodity or proto commodity, I guess. And then that makes it uh, sellable in a way that it was not prior to the expenditure of that labor. And then unproductive labor is kind of any labor that doesn't really do that in a sense, you could say um, it's, it's uh, so things like an example that Marx uses is uh, like transportation. You're not really changing the character of the commodity. Um, I guess you can argue that maybe having it in one location versus another is changing its commodity, but in terms of its, it's kind of abstract utility that's not totally really relevant. But, uh, you know, things like transportation, you're, you're not changing the character of a commodity. You're just moving it from one place to another. Uh, and so unproductive labor sounds like it's like useless labor, but really like it's, it's not obviously like, you know, if you can't move goods around, like, you know, what good, what good are they? Um, and but then things like uh, what you would broadly call service work, which Jason Smith goes into a very extensive uh, discussion of like what this term means and what it doesn't mean. Uh, you know, a lot of work like, like a household servant isn't 
they're not really creating a commodity, but they're still doing something that's useful uh, to someone. So these these distinctions are important um, for automation discourse, largely because, uh, and here I'll, here I'll get into living versus dead labor, uh, all the entire economy rests ultimately on productive labor. You know, the the circulation of commodities is what, what keeps the economy flowing. I mean, you can't have an economy that's entirely not built on making commodities or, you know, societal reproduction because all of in order when you when you automate a manufacturing process or some kind of process that uh, involves that basically displaces productive labor uh, or changes the character of productive labor, uh, you then create a way for more unproductive labor to to exist. I'll, I'll get into that more in a bit later. Maybe we can we can talk about that jointly. But um, if we're going to talk about living versus dead, like living labor is li- is labor that's act- that's actively being expended in the course of uh, creating a commodity. Whereas dead labor is labor that's already been spent and exists in the form of, uh, I guess you could say a commodity, but in the in when we're talking about production, you know, dead labor exists in the form of fixed capital or constant capital, uh, more accurately, um, which a lot of constant capital is fixed capital. Uh, fixed capital being investments that do not expend the entirety of their fixed value into a commodity in one go. So like a big a big manufacturing machine like a big mill or something that costs a bunch of money it's it's a bunch of a bunch of labor went into making that machine a bunch of labor that is now dead uh, however that machine slowly transfers its value in a marxist sense to a bunch of commodities over the course of its useful lifetime um, as you have more and more and more of this automation so and by automation automation is really just kind of a modern fancy way to say more machines more machines mm-hmm. and uh, industrial stuff that uh, that basically lets people be more productive in a Marxist sense than they were before. Like one laborer in the same amount of time can create more commodity value, surplus value, really. The, yeah, I guess uh, that's kind of, that's, that's kind of like the, the important distinction, but the ramifications are are huge, of course, um, as you, and I talk about this a bit in, in my essay, but other people focus on this more directly, like, like Marx and, but more recently people like uh, Jason Smith and Aaron Beninov and people like that. But as you automate more and more things, you get fewer and fewer people in the uh, doing productive labor because you just, you know, the employer doesn't need as many people doing it because you have all these fancy machines doing a lot of the actual uh, physical labor. And so that creates a larger amount of people available to work in non-productive labor. But then in order to really make use of all that, uh, you know, what's now fixed capital to me, all this dead labor in the form of fixed capital, you know, you need people, you, you need more people, more office staff that are, uh, not making a commodity, but they're, you know, uh, making expense reports, they're doing accounting, they're doing all this unproductive labor, but it's essential for managing this incredibly complex web of um, dead labor that now has to be actuated in the form of uh, commodities that can be sold for money. It's it's a lot. There's a lot going on there. Digging into that a little bit more, you know, like we have talked before around like David Graeber's bullshit jobs thesis, um, and and you know how you're describing unproductive labor. You know, it's not a complete uh, 
uh, you know, one to one, but there is certainly a, a Venn diagram with heavy overlap between like unproductive labor and what Graeber would call bullshit jobs, right? And it is this kind of, you know, spreadsheet jockeys, you know, it's, yeah, it's people, people inserting, uh, one day, you know, data from one spreadsheet into another spreadsheet, uh, you know, doing this kind of, you know, bureaucratic administrative work. And it's, you know, it, it, it's, it, yeah, it, you know, it comes across as very alienating, very soulless, uh, kind of work that seems to have no purpose, right? Like it is that sense that, you know, Graeber is getting at it in terms of like a, a more kind of like anthropological view of how do people actually experience the, the labor of being, you know, quote unquote unproductive in the Marxian sense or doing bullshit jobs in, in the Graeber sense. Um, and it does seem to be that it really weighs on people that they feel like they're not actually doing anything, right? They spend their days working really hard, 40, 50, 60 hours a week, uh, doing, and at the end of it, they're like, what, what have I produced? You know, what, what have I done except moves things, uh, around in spreadsheets, um, or produce, yeah, expense reports or, or these kinds of things. But at the same time, I think that also plays very much into, uh, like that is a form of dead labor, right? Because it, you're exactly right here in terms of, uh, describing dead labor, uh, as, you know, the kind of fixed capital or constant capital, you know, the dead labor is materialized in the technological systems, right? The actual, the actual things, the production line or the mills or the robotics or whatever. But at the same time as well, I think Marx would also incorporate things like organizational structures uh, into dead labor. So like bureaucracies, while they might not be materialized um, into a tangible thing, they are also a form of of, of fixed capital. They are also a form of dead labor in, you know, in a more like organizational way. Um, I, I always think about like, you know, Marx, uh, observes how capital innovates these ways to further abstract and appropriate workers as merely, you know, what he calls li quote, living source of value, you know, treating them not as humans, but as another component in the means of production. You know, th this is the, uh, and, and their whole job becomes working with and working for dead labor that's materialized in these technological systems or these organizational structures that are all built to just facilitate capital accumulation um, and capital uh, and commodity circulation. And I, I think about how, you know, uh, to, to quote Marx, um, and I think it's Capital Volume 1, he says, you know, factory work exhausts the nervous system to the uttermost. Uh, and through the despotic discipline of dead labor used to dominate living labor, capital confiscated every atom of freedom from workers, both in bodily and intellectual activity. Uh, and, you know, thinking as well around like, you know, E.P. Thompson's historical work on the making of the English working class and how he talks about how, you know, the worker in the history of advanced capitalism has no option but to shed pre-capitalist habits of work and internalize work discipline. In other words, the making or remaking of the working class is a project of shaping people, subjects, social relations so that they better plug into these processes of capital accumulation. And part of that is that they become uh, subservient to dead labor, right? Their whole job is, as you put it, like managing and maintaining this immensely vast, complex, interwoven web of capital accumulation, which ultimately boils down to uh, keeping dead labor running um, uh, through, through the living labor. 
So that entire that that whole uh, making labor concretely more subservient to the the abstract needs of capital that's uh, what a lot of people would call real subsumption versus the the kind of more formal subsumption. Formal subsumption being you know a a pre capitalist form of production becomes uh, is stays roughly the same in its character, but it you know now creates money for the global capitalist market. Whereas uh, you know real subsumption is the kind of where that that process becomes. Uh, more and more subject to the uh, you know the rationalization, the standardization of capital, and that's where it becomes, like you said, subservient to the existing dead labor. Uh, I'm not sure Marx would have called like the organizational organizational structures of capital dead labor necessarily, but I think you're absolutely correct that all of that, like whether it's like the physical machines that are dead labor or the um, the the bureaucratic structures of managing a, a big company, those are all ultimately just the personification of capital, either either in the form of living people or in the form of dead labor. I, I think this, this kind of real subsumption is a really good way to think about um, a way like kind of the, in a modern sense, the difference between labor that can labor that is like automatable and not automatable and why we see a lot of the service sector or like what, what gets called the service sector, not being as automated uh, or like barely automated in a lot of senses. Uh, Jason Smith talks a little bit about this a lot in, uh, those essays he wrote for the rail. Uh, he also goes into this in his book, um, smart machines and service work, but, uh, yeah, like a lot of this kind of service work that's based around just interpersonal services, you can't, you can't, there's no, you can't really subject that to, to, uh, real subsumption. I mean, I think the example he gives is a, is a haircut, which he says a lot of other literature uses as, as its prime example, but you know, how do you, automate a barber or how do you like standardize their work? You, you don't, you know, there's like, you, you just can't. And a lot of work is like that. Yeah, you know, I think I think that's one of the things reading these essays I really enjoyed is the effort to which he tries to elaborate or tries to flesh out the arguments that he's uh, going up against and and laying out where what areas they fall short and and what his analysis will be to come. You know, uh, their failure to account for the root cause of like declining profit rates. Um, or to reconcile that with uh, labor and capital dynamics, and both in the in at the level of the workplace, and then also in specific sectors of the economy, but also to the to these to the grand narrative or the constant search and invocation of like a generally purpose or generally a general use case of technology. I forget what the specific phrase was, but like this idea that there can be a technology that, if deployed properly, will yield massive productivity and uh, gains and increases to the living uh, standards of most people on their wages um, and free them of work and free and free them for leisure uh, like uh, a, a narrative that has emerged time and time again both as a doomsday warning and also as uh, as a as a promise of like uh, what's around just around the corner of a post-industrial post capitalist order and 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 having him tease that out and then turn it around to say, okay, so if we're, if we're looking at what people do call the service sector and we look at the growth of the jobs in there and we look at the nature of the actual work, then like you're saying, a lot of it is like interpersonal stuff. A lot of his provision for other people, you know, or, or help or, or doing a sort of labor that can't really be standardized or that is using the human beings to try to standardize it. Right. And, and you can't actually bring in a machine to do it. But then the question I think I feel like I keep coming across is like, you know, why do we keep, why is there still this need to try to invoke technology as, um, 
as a, the the way to save us from like the secular stagnation, or is that it? Like, there's just is this technology keep getting invoked in, in automation in one in one way or another because the stagnation of capitalist development is uh, terrifying, and there's like not a, doesn't seem to be an actual salve for it at this point. I, I think the the funny thing about all that is that like about positing automation as like saving us from capital secular stagnation is the whole reason it's stagnating secularly in the first place. Like that's, it's literally the reason like, yes. <laughs> like <laughs> you're getting robbed and then like, you're like, this gun will save me. So you hand it to the guy robbing you like, here, use this, this will save me. Like, <laughs> Yeah. Let's, let's talk about that also. I think that that's a, that's an interesting, I mean, you're right on that, but also to flesh that out, like this idea that the choices that are being made to automate, or try to introduce automation or also like curtailing profit. Cause I think that that ends up being a chunk of the argument near the end of the first essay and build up in the second one. And I haven't read the book, but it sounds like I'm assuming it's also one that he fleshes out more entirely there. Yeah. The, the book rules. Um, I really, you guys should just get Jason on here. I'm, 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 I feel like at this point I'm just like, I'm the Walmart version of, you know, Jason Smith in this conversation, <laughs> just get the guy out here. He could, he can tell you everything you need to know. But um, yeah, I mean, uh, I guess the wait, what, what did we want to talk about hers? Did we want to talk which which aspect of that aspect of that do we want to tackle? Um, yeah, we. I think maybe we can first start talking about like the secular the stagnation, like this desire to to invoke automation as a salve to it, even though it's it's sparking it. You know, it's causing it and accelerating it. I think uh, personally, I think a, a big part of that is like from just like if we're talking kind of like in a subjective sense, like shit sucks. Uh, <laughs> like yeah. that's kind of a big part of it. Like, you know, like wages are low costs are getting high. Like, you know, they're just, it's, you know, the certain, the, the bad lines go up and then the good lines go down. That's how, right. that's how things are going right now. So, yeah. <laughs> and so, I mean, the idea that like, you know, no one, no one, people trick themselves into thinking they like working, but like no one really likes working. And so we <laughs> I do not and, dream of labor. No, <laughs> I don't. Well, I do. That's how you can tell it's penetrated so far into my brain. But the, I mean, the idea that we can just all work less with, you know, if we had machines to do all this stuff for us. I mean, that's like, that's like just objectively true. We, we could all work less if we had all these machines to do all this work for us. It obviously just doesn't get deployed that way. But like, it's, it's a very comforting promise to think that like, you know, in the future, we'll have this kind of like Jetsons, you know, paradise, you know, I mean, I guess unless you're a person of color, in which case I guess it's kind of terrifying because everyone in the Jetsons is white. Uh, the, the, like the whole, the whole reason it doesn't kind of work on this is moving more towards the kind of like concrete um, part of how, how the economy stagnates because of automation. I mean, like when you, when you automate a productive, when you automate productive labor um, it's, and this is, I go deeply into detail in this in my essay. This is where you, you're de-skilling it. It's um, it, you don't need the, like the knowledge and the, um, the experience of a skilled proletarian worker uh, or like, I guess the, the craftsperson of pre-capitalist production uh, you can get someone with minimal training or even like no training and very quickly get them doing the same quality of work as someone of high skill using the same machine. Uh, and so as a result, wages are going to drop in the productive sector. And then um, even though profits may expand in the productive sector, these profits have to get spread around uh, uh, like across the unproductive parts of the economy because the unproductive parts of the economy, there's no surplus labor value being extracted. You know, the, the service that is performed. And when we say service, I'm not just talking about like interpersonal services, like in the home, it's, it's like the entire sector of the economy. Like there's like, you know, like things like consulting, like in engineering, there's like a ton of consultancies who don't actually, I mean, they don't make a single thing. They don't design anything. It's uh, but they provide very important services for, 
you know, helping other firms produce a commodity because there's, you know, so much market research you got to do. There's all this, um, like analysis you got to do. There's, um, there's, there's, there's so much just brain work that needs to go into getting all this dead labor into, you know, into action. And that's, again, something I talk about in my essay a lot, how you, you concentrate all this technical expertise into like a smaller group of people. And a lot of the work that that smaller group of people does is, uh, you know, unproductive labor in this sense. So, uh, even though some people may end up making higher wages out of automation, the vast majority of uh, people are making lowered wages because their jobs are being increasingly automated or they're working, doing labor that does not get paid a lot because like a lot of these, even though some of these consultants get paid very well, for instance, like the vast majority of, you know, the un- like industrial um, unproductive labor does not get paid well. Cause like the entire, you know, they, the, the only, you know, the profit comes from like the, the, like if your workers are the majority of your costs, then like, you know, you can't, it's not like you can make them cost less. They're going to, an hour takes an hour unless you're, you know, it, it always takes an hour. So overall, if we, like wages are constantly decreasing um, and you can't, if more and more of the labor force is in sectors that can't be automated, you increasingly, there's less and less to automate. There's still, you can still, I mean, you know, there is automation increasingly being deployed. I mean, like I work at a place where we're automating more things, but uh, that's an increase. That's a shrinking share of the economy overall. And the part of the economy that can't be automated is a growing share of the economy overall. And by econ- I guess I shouldn't say economy. I should say um, percentage of working individuals. And so when that percentage of working individuals like that can't be automated grows, like that, the entire promise of automation kind of seems to like go out the window because there's just less of it happening that you can see in a more in a direct sense. Yeah, add a little bit of concreteness to this. I want to think through how automation yeah. is happening in, some, in in different sectors and different types of jobs. I think it also plays into like Aaron Beninov in his book, you know, Automation: A Future of Work. One of the arguments that he puts forth is, you know, we we are largely we're to varying degrees, you know, slave to uh, different metrics that economists say are important. You know, GDP, unemployment, right? Like these metrics that are used to discern the the health of the economy and the tra- the the you know trajectory of the economy, and therefore what interventions and policies need to uh, you know fix the economy. And you know, unemployment is one of the massive ones that we constantly hear about. You know, what are the unemployment numbers? Um, but you know, Aaron Benov argues uh, in his in his book on automation that unemployment is not the the main thing that's happening here in terms of like technological unemployment. You know, people are getting put out of work by technology or by robots or whatever. It's, it's two sides of a different coin. On one hand, is there's vast underemployment, so there's people that are not having enough hours, not making enough money um, to actually subsist. You know, they are uh, uh, only limited limited to working like part-time jobs or trying to string together, uh, you know, three or four different part-time jobs. I mean, this is exactly the premise of the gig economy uh, is that, you know, you can use it as a supplement to your normal job. You know, are you, are you being underemployed uh, at Taco Bell where you can, well, you can hop on Uber Eats and you can not only make the food at Taco Bell, but then you can deliver the food to the person <laughs> that wants to eat it, right? And that's solving the problem of under employment. But then what we end up seeing with a lot of people is uh, overemployment. You know, they are they are ending up having to work these like, you know, grueling hours of 50, 60, 70 hours, uh, you know, a week, you know, we hear the I mean, this is exactly why there's um, 
you know, strike actions and organizing happening, not only Amazon warehouses, but also, you know, places like Frito-Lays, you know, Tyson and all of these other, uh, you know, production lines where you see people are being forced to do mandatory overtime. They're working double shifts every single day. So, you know, 16 hour days, six days a week, seven days a week, um, sometimes endlessly without break. And they're, you know, it's overemployment and they're still not making enough money, right? Because they're at the very bottom of the wage floor. It's interesting to see how automation plays into perpetuating uh, this kind of dual system of underemployment and overemployment. And so uh, maybe we can, you know, I, I think about two different sectors here. So we can think about how automation is happening in Amazon warehouses as a kind of, uh, you know, a, a, a kind of prime example of what that looks like in um, the logistics sector, you know, warehouses actually delivering things to people. Uh, and, and so, uh, in particular, you know, I, I, I am drawing here from, I, I want to quote from it, um, Alessandro Del Fonte had a, had a book that just came out called The Warehouse, um, and it's based on his uh, really in-depth uh, you know, empirical and analytical work into like, what are the work practices of, uh, the Amazon warehouse? What do labor conditions look like there? And also how, how is Amazon using and, 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 uh, planning to use technology there? And one of the things that he found, uh, very interesting is that, you know, there, there is to varying degrees automation and robotics in where, in, in these warehouses, you know, some warehouses are hyper automated and hyper roboticized while other warehouses in different parts of the world are much less so. Um, but one of the things that he found very, you know, in looking at not only these actual labor practices, but then, you know, he did this really big analysis of uh, different patents that Amazon has filed over the last five years to try to get a sense of what, how is Amazon kind of trying to put their flag in the future of their business and and also in a larger sense the future of warehousing and logistics work um so i want to quote from from alessandro del fonte's book where he says you know amazon's patents make explicit the awareness of automation's physical and financial limits something many economists recognize some of the patents are so straightforward about this reality that they sound like labor sociology textbooks rather than corporate documents a patent by amazon for a modular inventory system describes automation as and to quote from the uh, amazon's patent expensive and time-consuming to implement, unlike a human workforce, which can be allocated according to need. For that reason, conventional inventory systems continue to utilize personnel for many tasks, even though human intervention tends to increase the cost and de decrease the speed throughout uh, throughput of any automated system. You know, and Del Fonte, you know, concludes that so human workers are cheaper, more flexible, and can re be replaced more easily than costly robots. Therefore, they will be present even in a future of roboticized warehouses. But while workers and robots will coexist, the company is concerned with making their interaction smoother, guaranteeing workers subordination to the ever-increasingly sophisticated technology they will encounter in the warehouse of the future.
I, this is really interesting because it flies in the face of this uh, displacement or, or rather replacement argument that automation is going to come in and it's going to replace the workers. But instead, what it ends up doing is it displaces the workers. It reorganizes the workers around uh, being subordinate to the automation, being subordinate to the robots. So when you see reports of um, Amazon warehouses that are actually really roboticized, that you know have a fully kitted out with the you know the Kiva robotic system and all that, what you end up seeing is that workers are oftentimes like literally put in cages where they stand in one place, and robots just constantly bring things to them. And then the, the workers, because the robotics are not dexterous enough to actually pick out commodities from the 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 towers uh, that are holding them, the robot, the robotics brings the, the tower to the worker and the worker does all of the, the manual labor of actually picking, sorting, packing, all of that. And what, what ends up happening is that the worker is subordinated and managed by the automation while at the same time, the pace of work uh, must uh, is is accelerated to meet the robotics pace of work. Um, and so... It's interesting to see this this flip side where humans are not replaced by robots, but rather humans, uh, you know, Am Amazon turns humans into robots or turns them into uh, an extension of the robots. And th this is very, you know, starkly different than these visions of the, the kind of lights out factory or the vision of uh, robotics at, or automation as the prime mover uh, in in the economy. Um, instead, it, it, it always has humans around it. It's more of a reorganization of work. It's more of a uh, the the who who has priority, who has primacy, and it's the the automation and as a kind of material form of capital's um, interest and preferences and imperatives. Uh, that then becomes the, the the primary mover, and the the human workers, the living labor, becomes subordinate um, to the dead labor. What Marx exactly said would happen, yeah. and it's always instructive to look at the way that Amazon, in some sometimes really satirical ways, seems to just be a perfect in, uh, embodiment of uh, of Marx's analysis. Like Amazon, you know, we I think we've joked about this on previous episodes, but you know the. The, the, the Virgin uh, CEO, you know, looks at uh, Sun Zhu's Art of War as a business manual. The, the, the Chad <laughs> Bezos looks at uh, Capital Volume 1 as a business manual. <laughs> exactly. And I was going to I was going to say, like, you know, that that exact dynamic you're talking about. I mean, Smith covers that in his in his book. Um, Braverman go, has a, a, a lot of you know, discussion about that in labor and monopoly capital. And then I was going to say, like, you know, importantly, Marx was talking about this, what, like 150 years ago or whatever. I mean, it's uh, the reason that like it works out that way is because, I mean, you know, like I, like I said, and like, you know, tons of people before me have said uh, this increasing automation just lowers wages across the board. Eventually wages get so low to the point where even if you like, even if you have the technological capacity to automate a some kind of task, including including service work. I mean, not not all service work is like fully unautomatable, um, but like you reach this impasse point where it doesn't make sense to invest the fixed capital into automating something simply because, like you like you said, Jathan, it's I mean, there's too much variability in, in the work that happens, or things change around too much, uh, or it's too temporary, and so yeah, just having a bunch of cheaply paid people to do it is gonna work out better like in the um uh in smith gives the example of in england 
uh, at some point during uh, after the industrial revolution, you know, wages were so lowered as a result of automation, ultimately that or like the the increase in fixed capital that to pull barges through the through the Thames River, they actually used to just hire a bunch of women for like almost nothing to physically pull the barges rather than expend the money on like machines or horses or something like that. And just because the cost of labor was so low, and that's that's something I mean even Marx was talking about. Uh, so it's 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 automation is it's it has so many weird trickle effects across the whole economy. It's bonkers. You know, we're at a point right now where like. For me, for extra work, I I will hop on like Uber Eats and do that, and it it always feels like really shitty having to like sell your labor like that when you really need the money. Something like that is going to continue as long as people are overworked and they're working all these hours, and it's not giving them time to do things like I don't know, go out to grocery shopping. So they have to rely on other bullshit jobs to provide these services for them because their jobs don't allow them enough time to be able to do this shit. Uh, Ed Notes 2 go, has a whole essay on on basically the, the subordination of the reproductive sphere into uh, like the circuits of capital and like basically marketizing the entire, you know, stuff that was previously performed unpaid almost entirely by women. Uh, now, you know, by women not only get proletarianized, everything they were doing in the household for free is opened up to the market. And that's, it's precisely that that you're talking about, Jeremy. That's same dynamic. And it's, 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 you know, on the one hand, you, it's, it's the whole double freedom of the proletariat thing. You know, we, we have the freedom to work, but like, you know, are we really so free if we're, you know, we're now trapped even further into the market and everything else that we do? But you're exactly right here, Jeremy, as well. And, and, and you know, you've very uh, aptly theorized it, Nick, where, you know, this is this is part of the, the, the economy as this Ouroboros, right? It, it, it mm-hmm. eats its own ass and it has to, uh, because it's like, it, it is this, this constant circular flow of commodic, uh, of, of commodification, of circulation, of capital accumulation, which also then lends it to this secular stagnation. And, you know, for folks, secular stagnation is just a, uh, a term of art in economics, and it really just means um, long-term stagnation, where uh, you know the the conditions of economic growth are negligible or or not uh, not growing at all. Um, in in these kind of market-based economies like capitalism, and the secular part, uh, you know, comes from a Latin term meaning long-term, which is meant to kind of counterpose it to more traditional ideas that the the economy is secular, uh, secular. Uh, Sick, circular. I can't say the fucking. Uh, sick, it, it goes in cycles. <laughs> cyclical, that one. <laughs> but uh, secular. Uh, but anyways, uh, traditional notions of the economy as a boom-bust cycle, basically, right? Where you know you've got these great booms of productivity and growth, and then you know you've got the bust, right? Where the bubble burst, or you know a depression happens, or a repression, ha- or you know a repression happens, but then it grows again, right? It all come and it, it takes two steps forward but it takes you know a major leap or two steps back but it takes a major leap forward but what we've been seeing for decades now is um, secular stagnation or long-term stagnation where we see the bust we see the bubbles burst and we see great repressions and uh, you know pandemic induced depressions um, but some but but mysteriously there's no boom um, that follows them it's just further and further down the rabbit hole of of, of bust after bust after bust, unless you happen to own 
you know, Amazon, or you happen to uh, be the uh, uh, or or unless you happen to enjoy you know uh, a a place of, of of lordship over the fictitious capital uh, you know i.e. Elon Musk right like that is in part why Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk hate each other so much is because one is the paradigm uh, or paragon of 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 the real economy and one is the paragon of, of fictitious capital um, and instead you know you got these two kaiju fighting it out but it's a <laughs> but instead it's a, it's an alien versus predator situation no matter who wins we lose um you know automation plays into that i mean we can even see it with elon musk right i mean the fictitious capital of elon musk is in large part based on promises of autonomous cars again automation is going to save us the the real capital um of of uh, jeff bezos is in large part based on um, you know, automated warehouses and automated delivery. But again, these things are false. Uh, as, as we see, like automation is there, but doesn't do anything like what uh, it's promised to be. What it's meant to be is instead other ways of uh, subordinating living labor human workers to dead labor, um, you know, technological systems and and another, another. I also want to, you know, so that's that that Amazon case study provides us a nice example of how that happens. I also want to just provide an anecdotal example uh, of the service economy, uh, the more traditional service economy. Thinking of like fast food, McDonald's, you know. So like, there's a Mc, there's a McDonald's uh, near my house that's on a very busy highway, and so this McDonald's is constantly busy. Um, there's always people inside. There's always a line of cars go you know waiting to go through the drive-through, and if you go into the McDonald's, you cannot order from a person. It's all kiosk, right? It's all the, the touchscreen kiosk where you're actually placing your order. Um, and, and so that, that, you know, this is a way that, uh, the fast food industry has for a large, for a long time used the threat of automated kiosk, uh, to say you ask for a $15 minimum wage in the U S well, then we're just going to bring in automated kiosk and we're going to get rid of your job. You know, you ask for, for, for worker rights or labor rights. Well, we're going to bring in the automated kiosk and then we won't need you anymore. But if you go into this McDonald's near my house, uh, there are more people working in the back, cooking food, assembling food, uh, you know, managers overseeing it all, clearing orders, getting stuff out the door. Um, there are more people working at this McDonald's than, than I've ever seen before. I worked at a McDonald's very briefly when I was 15. It was my first job. Uh, and, and this was long before automated kiosk. This was where everybody, there were no automated kiosk in the McDonald's I worked at in the Midwest, you know, back in, uh, uh, 2005, 2006. It was all people taking your orders. Um, but there, there are more people working at this, you know, uh, automated McDonald's than the McDonald's that I worked at, you know, uh, 15 years ago. There are more, like, I don't know how they could possibly squeeze more teenagers into the back of that McDonald's. Um, they're, they're packed in like sardines. And it's, and, and, you know, it's all anecdotal, but I think it also shows that this, 
this threat that the automated kiosk was going to replace workers has not borne out to be true. Instead, what, instead, if anything, they're hiring more, more human workers because they're able to take more orders. And the onus is on the human workers who, you know, they, they haven't, just as Amazon warehouse workers have not been automated away because uh, the either the technology is not advanced enough to do the dexterous job of, of picking commodities or assembling a Big Mac, or it would cost so much more to actually install those automated technologies than it would to just hire um, people at minimum wage. So instead, you know, the pace of work is just sped up in the McDonald's, even though there's uh, you know, off the top of my head, I would say there's 15 automated kiosks in this McDonald's, uh, 15 touch screens where you can, you know, place your order. Um, but, uh, and, and all that means is that they can do more orders more quickly, which means that people have to work faster. There have to be more people working in the back. There have to be more fryers going, more grill, uh, you know, more grills going, more hot plates going, uh, uh, all of that. And, and again, the threat that McDonald's and these fast food companies have long said of if you don't start acting right, we're going to replace you has again, not borne out to be true. Instead, it's, um, well, you didn't act right. So we put the automated kiosk in, but instead of replacing you, we're just going to hire, uh, even more of you and make the work even worse. Over and over and over and over again. I think it's also interesting that like, even though we see time and time again, like that, the, that it has kind of refused the 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 idea that there will be replacement this uh, this great replacement coming on has refused to I think die down I I mean of you know Smith talks you know, about it in a few ways they talk about it by, by going through the history of the literature in that first essay and then there's a second part of the essay actually like confronting um, some of the statistics about it sometimes when I'm confronting this maybe it's just night night. I can't pronounce this word naivety. Uh, you know, a few sections from the the essay, of course. But this, you know, the discussion that y'all are having was making me think about um, how he, you know, how he writes that, like in you know, wealthy, complex economies such as the U.S. and the U.K., they continue to add jobs, and the United Kingdom, in particular, has shown incredible fa- uh, facility in job creation since the Great Recession of two thousand seven, when the bottom last fell out of the job market. But real wages have lagged far behind 2007 levels, and many of these additional workers are doing little to boost real living standards. They continue to employment effectively the product of subsidies extracted to provide make work rather than the result of competitive market conditions. These subsidies take the form of government payouts and what remains of the social wage as food stamp programs and meager tax credits allow large firms to hire unskilled workers as cut rate compensation. Many of the fastest growing are the, you know, Many of the fastest growing occupations in the UK is in the US are not in uh, what the Financial Times writer calls make work, state subsidized employment and retail, restaurants, sales and security, but in the least desirable forms of care work, often involving cleaning, washing and disposing of waste or simply standing over watch of the elderly, the idle or small children. And going on to say, this is the capitalist labor market of the early 21st century, a world of domestic servants resembling in this way, the archaic world of the mid 19th century for many often women and more often still women of color, the employment on offer can truly be called abject. And I think, and that's also one of the, one of the stranger developments. I, I think that I was talking about that makes me feel naive sometimes where it's like, I feel that it's pretty demonstrable that 
working conditions are degrading, that a lot of the work that is being created, you know, is in sectors where it's in one way or another, you're servile to another person or the relations are being reconstructed over time so that you are servile, you know, in serving other people, right? That in other parts of the world, in the Anglo sphere, that there's a lot of oh, effort made uh, to construct, like the, they said, these subsidies to encourage employment and retail and restaurant work, or do deals with the state so that you can get subs- you can get like money back essentially for having them on some you know uh, bear threadbare uh, social program. So why the persistent um, refusal to acknowledge this? And and insist that things are different this time um, in the iteration. I think, or in the literature, is like one of the questions I have because I feel like I keep coming across it whenever I read um, people's histories of it. You know, the work here. You know, when I think about like uh, the conversation that you know uh, Jason and um, and Jeremy had with you. When I think about you know Aaron Benioff's uh, you know, essays and work on this, it just feels like the literature and in general, a lot of the body of work of other theorists and, and, and academics and economists um, are looking at like a totally different picture of reality. It seems like, right. But like, why is there a refusal to accept the trend that is going on and, and see that there's not actually this mass unemployment around the corner or even, you know, on the horizon. I think because really there's only there's only two possible outcomes from that, and this is very plainly obvious historically. You you either have a massive war that will destroy enough fixed capital to revitalize the economy, or you get a class war at home, and you know, feet yeah. and heads start rolling. So I mean, like, yeah, which I mean, you know, I I'll let the the listeners decide which one I'm in favor of. But. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Piketty was right. There are only there are only a few ways to destroy capital and uh, and yeah. uh, you know get things going again. Yeah, so it's it's funny in a way how uh, you know waging war abroad is kind of a, almost a way to inoculate yourself against you know proletarian militancy domestically. Um, yeah, I think that's kind of like you know we're coming up on the horizon of, of something, and it's gonna be it's gonna be one or the other, if not both, or or maybe some third horrible option. I don't even want to imagine, but you can only have a like. A society where you know people can't afford to buy the things they need to live for for so long before you know something has to give. And I mean, I think people are more and more waking up. Like, just you know, the average random person is like more and more realizing, like, hey, I'm earning less and everything costs more. You know, something's wrong about this. Got to do something. But and you know, voting obviously isn't doing the trick. So and the fact that we have we live in like in the in the more like industrialized parts of the world where we have. fewer and fewer people working in uh, at doing productive labor, you know, you have all these people where or generally just discontent and it's, it's manifesting in ways that are uh, outside the workplace, but still very militant. I mean, like the, the entire George Floyd rebellion that we had um, recently participants in that were, I mean, cause it wasn't, it wasn't solely like one strata. It wasn't just like, you know, the, the media makes to make it out look like it's like, you know, demographically it's like only like poor urban black people doing it but then in the reality it was it was a pretty like cross class or by by cross class i mean like within the class like it was lots of proletarian people or people who you know would be proletarian if not for the fact that they're under or underemployed or overemployed in, in the sense you know it manifesting discontent in a way that like that that obviously wasn't the first time someone was wrongly killed by police yet we're getting you know this kind of like mass proletarian kind of anger coming out and I feel like it's going to, given that we're like things are getting worse, I feel like we're going to see more and more of these kind of struggles in the reproductive sphere 
of like either I can't, you know, get by or I'm tired of being subjugated by the state's uh, apparatus is designed to keep capital moving. Uh, you know, the whether, you know, here in the US, it's prominently the police, but I mean, there's other organs of the state that do that find other ways to screw people over. I think we're going to see more and more of this kind of militancy popping up in the like, at least here, not necessarily in the point of production for a lot of people. I think we'll see maybe a, a lot of things at the point of production or distribution, but also a lot of just struggle in the reproductive sphere as a result. And what that means for a politics that you know, aims for a society that is better for everyone. It's that's kind of yet to be seen. Yeah, I mean, I think I think this is exactly exactly right in terms of you know this is this is the the kind of pointy end of something like secular stagnation is that you know wages have been stagnant for a very long time and yet the consumer price index keeps going up right the cost of goods keep going up the cost of housing keeps going up the cost of healthcare keeps going up everything keeps going up and up and up uh, while wages remain stagnant and and while also most people are shut out from uh, accumulating any wealth for for the vast majority of people in the, in the, in the past uh, that you know that was accumulated through owning a home right that was where you accumulated wealth and where you also had something to pass on to the next generation uh, even if it was you know pretty meager it was still something right you still had something to show for at the end of a of a, of a productive life um, and you could provide you know something for the for for your your children or your grandchildren and we're seeing that simply not being the case while also again you know think about the the larger kind of um organizing theme of, of automation for for these episodes you know while seeing a lot of automation happening and but somehow you know somehow not seeing it reflected in uh in in the productivity stats in the uh in the growth stats right like it's automation that is like in a lot of ways maintaining stagnation, which I think gets to the point uh, that we've been get, that we've been talking about to just put a, a finer edge on it is that a lot of automation that actually exists and that you know actually impacts our lives um, is you know it's not the uh, the automation that you know uh, uh, Keynes, you know, uh, you know, uh, May, you know, James Maynard Keynes talked about in terms of like you know economic prospects for our grandchildren, where it was this kind of Jetsonian world where we're all working, you know, four hours a week, but all of our needs are met, and a lot of that was meant to happen through a very booming economy, um, a lot of high, uh, you know, high tech, advanced automation that would liberate us from the toil of work. Um, but instead, you know, as Aaron Beninoff, uh puts it in his book, right, like, uh, all, although automation should entail humanity's collective liberation from toil, we live in a society where most people must work in order to live, meaning this dream may, may well turn out to be a nightmare. It is that constant maintenance of a wage-labor relationship 
um, while you know, which which your know, capital is is very adherent to, very invested in maintaining, um, and so it means that when uh, when automation, when there is investment in automation, when it is actually rolled out, what we end up seeing is not the automation of labor, but the automation of management, right? Of managing workers. Uh, that's where a lot of automation comes in. And it's not just in the sectors we've talked about. And I would actually, in a minute, like to throw it over to you, Nick. You know, we talked about what it looks like in Amazon warehouses. We talked about what it looks like in McDonald's. I would really like to hear your thoughts about what it looks like in the manufacturing and more industrial sectors. Um, but before we get to that, you know, I, the, the point is that a lot of the automation that is act, that does actually exist um, is, uh, is, is automation of management of, uh, of, of a working class, of, uh, of a working class who, you know, is getting a bit restless, a bit unsettled, a bit unruly. Um, so, you know, you need to manage them better. Um, and there's no, uh, there's no better way to do that than through automation, through a computer, through technology, through algorithms, whatever it's called, you know, there's, there seems to be no better way, uh, no, no more totalizing way to manage the working class than through automation, which is why I think we see so much of the investment and so much of the actual uh, material impacts of automation on our lives happens through these forms of uh, automated decision making. And, you know, and again, it's not just in the Amazon warehouse or in the uh, fast food restaurant. But it's also in large part through um, other forms of automated decision making. It's, you know, it's the, the Uber Eats or Deliveroo or DoorDash or whatever the next platform is. It's, you know, it's those, it's their proprietary algorithms that are coordinating and organizing and commanding, uh, uh, you know, a sprawling, um, you know, pool of labor, to, you know, telling them go here, go here, go there, go there. It's also a lot of automation of care work as well. You know, it's uh, Virginia Eubanks, um, who has done a lot of work on, on the way that like systems of governance and government and social services have been automated, you know, has, has talked about how like, uh, you know, the, the care work uh, of what like um, Ed was talking about from the Jason uh, Smith article around you know the the these for these uh forms of care work that involve cleaning washing disposing of waste uh standing watch over the elderly the idle the disabled small children right like a lot of these jobs are also hyper managed by um automated systems that are you know deciding um did you do you know are you doing what you're supposed to be doing are you working when you when and where you're supposed to be working are you do you know are you meeting these metrics right and and it, it's this again it says automated management and so our our lives are you know while we may not uh see the uh, you know explicit material empirical impacts of automation around us. You know we don't look around and see a lot of uh, you know what we imagine as a kind of Jetsonian automated world. Well, but we do actually live in a highly automated world. But it's a world where management and bureaucracy and administration has been automated, has been offloaded onto um, algorithmic systems of surveillance and discipline and control, um, where the 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 management of life, 
uh, is you know, often given over to um, these automated decision-making systems. Like that is, uh, the, that, that is for the vast majority of people, the reality of how automation happens. And, you know, I, I just think about like, you know, it happens in these very real ways too. Like there was a very big, controversial, famous case in Australia a few years ago called RoboDebt, where there was this automated system uh, that, the, uh, that the Australian government had you know, kicked people off of welfare benefits um, because, uh, you know, the, it, it was just this algorithm that was automatically, um, you know, trying to uh, uh, compile like tax records and income records uh, and then making decisions about like if people are, are eligible or not eligible for welfare benefits. Um, and, and it made, and it, it automatically, you know, uh, sent out these, these uh, debt letters to, thousands, tens of thousands of people saying you actually owe the government, you know, hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of dollars um, in uh, uh, welfare benefits that you actually weren't qualified for based on our, you know, tax records and income records. It kicked people off of these uh, benefits. It put them in a position of either having to try to um, appeal or refute uh, these, uh, these, these debt letters or try to scrounge together money to pay them. And it turns out uh, it, this automated system that was governing social services in Australia was wrong. Uh, it was sending all these letters out in error. Um, but again, it was automated management of, of the working class, of the poor, um, of the proletariat. And it was a way to, you know, just keep people down, kick them off benefits. That, that to me seems to be the actual living nightmare of what an automated world looks like um, versus the one that we, was supposed to come uh, where it liberates us from, from toil and liberates us from uh, necessity. Certainly. Um, yeah. So I, there's a lot of things I, I want to say about that, but, but before I do, um, I want to, I want to clarify one thing about the, the George Floyd rebellion. I said earlier, I don't want people to think I'm too economistic here. When I said that it was largely a, a fight in the reproductive sphere, it wasn't, I didn't mean to say that um, that was like the prime reason, but rather that the modality through which uh, tr uh, like capitalism's inability to reproduce itself uh, in the U S largely takes the form of racism and for a lot of people, in fact, probably most people in some way or another. So uh, when I, when I say that, that's what the rebellion was about. It was maybe the underlying reason, but yeah, I, I, I want to make it clear that that's uh, that's it's much more complex than it's just like doing rather, you know, paycheck too small, you know, it's, it, there's more to it than that. That being said, um, I do think there, there's a lot to be said really about the way, like exactly what you just broached on Jathan about the, like kind of the algorithmic control of society's reproduction in general. Cause we, we can talk all day about the automation of, you know, kind of classical automation, uh, you know, big machines coming in and uh, just, you know, displacing or replacing workers. So in, in a lot of ways, like that, which was impenetrable, impenetrable to automation before is in, increasingly more open to it because of, of software. Uh, and uh, Braverman kind of hints at this uh, in his, before software was really kind of starting to take off as its own thing um, with the way that, you know, the, the personal computer was really turning office workers into factory workers in a way of, you know, because now you had like typists and everything like that. And it's, I mean, that's kind of like the, the kind of start of it. Um, now granted, there wasn't like big, huge, like fancy algorithms determining that, but you still had kind of this digital technology that turns work that maybe arguably that is, you know, service work basically into more streamlined versions of it. 
in the like i guess in industry any industry really not just not just like you know primary and secondary industry but just like any any part of the economy you have uh, you know more and more software engineers developing code that either explicitly or implicitly does that um i was talking to a software engineer recently who I met, who um, he really, his, my essay really resonated with him, despite the fact that his, because uh, I, I characterize software engineers in, in the paper I wrote mostly as uh, as largely automating their own work in the sense, so in, in a lot of ways, they're almost more like a highly skilled technician than an engineer in a certain sense. Um, I put that that's not the case for all engineers, or not all software engineers. And the reality is that that's kind of that's kind of true, because a lot of software engineers do, in fact, um, are responsible for kind of algorithmically controlling uh, the work of other laborers. So this this particular software engineer I was talking to, uh, I, I, if I remember correctly, he, he works for a, uh, like a clothing company. And for like fulfilling shipping orders and everything like that, uh, there's an entire you know suite that he's created uh, with a, another with a, his software team to basically make to reduce the amount of error and amount of decision making that a warehouse operator or someone has to do in order to fulfill the shipments. Um, and it does a lot of the decision making and control for them. And so you have a lot of the software doing things like that, both in in warehouses, in factories, in other places, and then also in the like outside of the productive sphere. You know, and again, when I say productive sphere, I mean like the entire, just like the the form the the formal economy with its like productive and unproductive sectors, but also just the reproductive part of society, where you know the state has to manage just you know cap- like capital's ability to just continue reproducing itself, like the Australian situation with the, with the welfare checks is like the, the perfect example of, of how that kind of thing is getting more and more entrenched in there. And I mean, you know how it, it's fun to kind of think of like these sci-fi dystopian ideas where they end up. Um, and by fun, I mean, interesting, it wouldn't actually be fun, but you know, <laughs> where they where we lose control of the algorithm and then it's like, you know, it, it locks any people out. And then now you have this, we're all beholden to this, you know, algorithm that is a black box and we can't, you know, control. And it's, it's, it sounds like a very sci-fi thing, but in an abstract way, I mean, that's kind of how capital is like, no, no one person really controls it. Like capital is a, it's a global kind of like alien that has, has put it wriggled its tentacles into everything. And, and we're all just kind of like in its thrall. Cool thing about, I mean, the, so the thing about all this kind of like the, this algorithmic uh, control over everything, like I, I'm, I'm, I'm a traditional mechanical engineer. I, I deal with nuts and bolts. I'm not too familiar with a lot of this, the propagation of software on, on like a macro scale like this. But it's cool. I think that there's a lot of like study being done into it. And like it's it's as big data becomes more of its own industry, we have people kind of examining big data and taking a look at, you know, what that what that means and what the problem where the problems lie in that are. I mean, like if you take machine learning, for instance, like the, you know, how you have all these data sets that are, you know, garbage data in garbage data out, basically, or like, you know, facial recognition training data sets that are like super racist or whatever. Uh, you know, all this stuff is like irredeemable. You can't, you can't, um, you really can't use it for anything. I mean, like at least anything outside of capital, like, and I think that's kind of things like when, when the kind of traditional manufacturing kind of stuff that I'm used to, you know, all these machines that we have that are just, you know, just, you know, big capitalist machines, a lot of those, you, I mean, a lot of them you can't do anything with, you probably just have to scrap them uh, if we were to have a communist society, but then a lot of them you can repurpose for, you know, communist ends, either just as is or with some slight modifications uh, to not have to be running all the time. But a lot of the software that gets written now, I feel like a larger, and this is purely anecdotal, I have no data to back this up, this is just a gut feeling thing, but I feel like most of the software that gets written these days um, probably has zero utility outside of the direct capitalist context it's used in 
compared to a lot of the hardware that exists, which we can we can probably find some other use for uh, in a new society. We have this big bubble of software engineering right now. You know, there's it's a big field. They're, they're, they uh, they always need to hire software engineers somewhere. Their salaries are huge. You know, it's like it's like the in thing. Um, and so, I mean, one part of me feels like that's a bubble that's going to pop eventually. But I mean, even if it doesn't, like it's just makes me sad. All this high tech labor is just useless for anything outside of itself. It sucks. Makes me sad. Yeah. It feels bad, man. <laughs> it does. It feels, it feels bad, man. Yeah. yeah. It it does feel bad that there does seem to be uh so so much so much effort and time and energy and resources go into pro- producing things that are at the end of the day uh you know so socially uh you know socially harmful or at least um you know so socially ambiguous at best <laughs> you know which is not yeah. not, <laughs> not exactly where you want uh all of your uh all of your capital and 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 living labor and dev labor to go into um work that's not only unproductive but seems to be just not beneficial uh in any kind of like real social or material way uh it it does it does seem it does seem to be the case which i mean is also not surprising right it's not surprising that that is such a huge um you know a, a huge industry where people are paid um, quite well, but also exploited, uh, you know, massively as well. You know, you, you keep seeing more and more discontent, uh, uh, within big tech firms, you know, within the, the kind of professional software, uh, you know, uh, side of, of, of firms like Google, um, or Amazon or whatever. You still, you uh, keep seeing more and more discontent coming up as well, where people are like, you know, not to be like too vulgar Marxist about it, but it's like they're coming into a class consciousness, right? Where they're like, damn, like I'm also being really exploited. I'm also doing things that, you know, upon, uh, upon self-reflection, I'm like, is this really contributing to the vision of the world and the promises that we're, that, you know, these companies sell to people, you know, come work for us and you'll make the world a better place. Um, and I think it is also very telling that part of what, was a big catalyst for that, you know, was around like partnerships with the military where the, that is like, you know, big tech partnerships with the military, you know, becoming part of, beside the fact that they, that Silicon Valley emerged from the military industrial complex, but now it's yeah, like, completely. <laughs> yeah, completely. As we, you know, as we talked about extensively with Kelsey uh, Atherton in our, in our nine 11 episodes. Um, but you know, it, it's, you know, they're re- they're, the big tech is embracing that in a way and in such a like mask off way that, uh, you know, workers at these firms are just like, damn, like, is that what, is that what my, my, my efforts are being put toward? That's not the world I wanted. And then add to that, you know, the growing reporting and consciousness around like, um, labor conditions at Amazon or labor conditions with gig economy companies, uh, and, and labor conditions, you know, across different sectors that where tech is, uh, touching or disrupting or whatever, uh, you know, I, I think, I think you're right where there are a growing number of people in the, in software who are realizing like, you know, this, this is not the, this is not the promise that was sold to me, right? This is not the, this is not the job. This is not the, the purpose. Uh, this is not the productivity that made me get into this, uh, field in the first place.
there, there's still so much more for us to talk about here, but maybe we, if, if you want to stick around for a little bit longer, Nick, we can bring this over to the Patreon because I, I would be really curious. I think that there's, um, there's more discussion to be had around that, like more normative vision of, um, you know, how, what might a different, type of automation look like right like you know we've talked in our in our previous episode around what would communist engineering or engineering for communism or under communism look like i think the flip side uh, you know the not the flip side but the 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 hand in hand conversation with that is you know what what would more communist or socialist or even just socially beneficial um, forms of automation and technology look like and, and where might there be some divides between uh, that that more like hardware versus software um, side of things, and in what sectors this might actually these different changes and possibilities might take place. So all of that is to say, uh, lots more for us to discuss uh, and on the on the premium episode. But before we get to that, um, I do want to thank you very much, Nick, for for coming on yeah, and talking with us about the the political economy of automation. I think we've provided and you've helped us provide a a really solid primer for for kind of critically understanding what's actually happening in terms of the you know the the real economy um living labor and dead labor uh with automation so thank you very much nick of course and i i'm going to again insist uh, the audience i want you to i want you to hold the hosts here to this get them to get someone on here who actually like you know actually knows what they're talking about get them to get someone on here who actually writes about this not just me so <laughs> like I, i'm happy to help but yeah get get you know get go get smith on here get, get some of the other people who actually who actually talk about this? They'll they'll they'll, they'll give you a better episode than me. Ah, <laughs> uh, uh, this was you, a good one, but we'll still talk with them. But yeah, Smith <laughs> especially, I think that would be a great convo. Absolutely, yeah. you're, un- yeah, you're don't under- sell yourself short. Exactly, you're underselling <laughs> yourself yeah, here, yeah. Uh, Nick. This has been great. You have you have a lot of expertise you've provided, but no, you're exactly right. This is only the beginning. Um, this is this is really you know we're we're trying to provide that 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 baseline to build further on. And there there you know and for people who are interested, go back. Uh, you know, Ed and Jeremy did a really fantastic interview with Aaron Beninov about his work. Um, about automation, um, but also talking about science fiction as well, um, which is something that yeah. Aaron Beninov is super interested in. Uh, and, and that was a great episode. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So, so listeners go yeah. back, check that one out. It's a brilliant companion piece. Uh, read Nick's essay in Brooklyn Rail on, um, the present and future of engineers. We'll throw a link to that in the episode description, as well as a link to, um, Jason E. Smith's essays and Aaron Beninov's, uh, book, um, and, and, and Jason's book as well. So, you know, lots, lots of resources here to, to, to dig into, but, we're going to move on over to the Patreon and to the premium feed to talk further with Nick around some uh, normative visions of uh, all, you know, alternatives for automation um, and what possibilities do exist there. So find us there on patreon.com slash this machine kills your support is uh, always appreciated, but also um, a huge part of why TMK is able to do what we do. Uh, And so find us over there. Until then, later. Adios.